Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, this week the government announced plans to change the conditions that will apply to refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine. Instead of receiving about €220 a week, which has been the case up till now, uh, and which is roughly equivalent to the social welfare payment, new arrivals here will now receive €38, which is what applies to international protection applicants known as asylum seekers. And Ukrainians coming here will also be told that accommodation will be provided for 90 days, but after that they must source their own. These are pretty big changes, I have to say. And quite obviously, I think it's obvious anyway, it would be an attempt to stem the flow of Ukrainian war refugees into this country at a time when there's a massive difficulty in sourcing accommodation. We know, like, for instance, for I think it's for about two weeks now that international protection applicants, uh, those who are single men, have been told that there is nowhere for them to stay, and that's a pretty dire situation. Anyway, what will all of this mean, and how exactly is it connected to... I think there's fair to say a kind of a wind of change in relation to a general approach to immigration in the country. Irish Examiner political correspondent Kira Phelan broke the story initially about these changes. That was last October. And Kira joins me now. Kira, you're very welcome. Hi, Mick. Thanks for having me. Kira, so give us the specifics of what exactly the Cabinet agreed, I think it was, this week in relation to these changes. Yeah, so just to take your listeners back a little bit, Mick. So like you mentioned, I had this story back in October. We had reports in the weeks prior to that, that the government were essentially looking at, you know, a shift in policy, like you mentioned, to stem the flow of the number of Ukrainians that were coming to Ireland, particularly Ukrainians that may have spent some time in other EU countries and then had moved on to Ireland. And we had seen an increase in the number of Ukrainians in the last couple of weeks. The average uh, weekly increase was about, there was about 200, 300 Ukrainians coming. It had dipped off for a while, and I suppose the government were coming under significant pressure to try and see and source accommodation. And they decided then to look further into what was causing the increase here. And government sources would have said to me at the time that, you know, a lot of other EU member states that are housing Ukrainians had cut social welfare and essentially they weren't living in state accommodation indefinitely, which is what is happening in Ireland up until these changes will come into place at the end of January, February. So officials in the Department of Integration and the Department of Taoiseach had been working on these proposals for some time. However, there seemed to be a blockage in terms of how exactly 
they were going to bring, bring any medium to longer term proposals into place for many different reasons. So Roger Gorman, the integration minister back in October, brought a proposal to a meeting every Monday night that occurs between the t- three coalition leaders, so Leo Radker, Eamon Ryan and Tanish Michal Martin, and said, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, I wasn't in yeah, the yeah. room, but essentially, we need to do something about it. We're under pressure. I've tried at the cabinet subcommittee meetings for your listeners, which are happens every couple of weeks to have an update on the situation in terms of Ireland response to Ukraine, in terms of housing, education and all the rest of it. And he'd been saying for so long, we need a medium to long term approach. We need to move away from an emergency response of the hotel accommodation. Something needs to change. And it seems like there was a little bit of reluctance to allow this change to come in because realistically now, and I'll come to the proposals that came to Cabinet, we really don't know what is going to happen to Ukrainian refugees now after 90 days, where they're going to go because we're all so familiar with this housing crisis. So back in October, when we initially broke the story, it ends it just completely took off on the Tuesday. Um, the, the Taoiseach then at the cabinet meeting on the Tuesday, we had this, the story out on, on in Monday's newspaper, we'll say, and then cabinet met on Tuesday. And in a really unusual way, the Taoiseach opened the floor to the integration minister in any other business. It happens when basically you've gone through the memos and allowed Roderick O'Gorman to speak. And essentially what we have been reporting was that there was a row at cabinet and it was the housing minister... And the Taunashter, particularly Fianna Fáil members of Cabinet, that were pushing back on this proposal, saying that, you know, essentially you were transferring the responsibility of the accommodation situation with this 90-day proposal in state accommodation to the housing minister. And essentially asking what was his contingency plan after 90 days, where are Ukrainians going to go? And there was no real answer. And to be honest with you, when the proposal came to Cabinet, when you see what has come into effect now, it wasn't ready. Tanishta, who we know is very passionate about education, asked questions about, you know, well, if children are enrolled in local schools, where are they going to go exactly after the 90 days? And essentially, they hadn't looked at social welfare in terms of, you know, we are offering Ukrainians indefinite you know, state accommodation right now, as long as they have temporary protection in Ireland, which has been extended to 2025, March 2025. And looking at everything in the round and the cost of it to the state, which I know we might move on to later, people are starting to ask questions about. So like I said, long story short, there was a round cabinet, it was put off. And then we knew that it was going to come back to cabinet before Christmas. And at the time, you know, there was a request on the Social Protection Minister, Heather Humphreys, to look at options for social welfare, Norma Foley to look at what could happen in terms of education, and again, to look at the accommodation offering. So what we had then was Cabinet agreed after the coalition leaders seemed satisfied with a more, I suppose, comprehensive p- package that it's realistically, i say, by the end of January at this stage, 2024, any newly arrived Ukrainians into the state will only be offered state accommodation for 90 days. And while they're in the state accommodation, 
like you mentioned, the €220 payments that they were receiving will be cut to €38.80. And and for children, then it will be an additional €29.80. And once they leave state accommodation, we we actually don't know where they're going to go because obviously the rental sector and there hasn't been a huge uptake in the offer a home scheme. Their social welfare will go back up to €220. And those were the arrangements signed off by Cabinet this week. Okay, now a few things about that, Kira. First of all, you know, it's a change of scenario that we had towards refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine. Very understandable in a lot of ways, particularly, as you say, the housing crisis to the fore more than anything. But the first thing that I just find interesting about that is one would have thought that perhaps there may have been pushback in terms of some feeling, as I'd say some people in the country do, how many I don't know, that, you know, we have obligations under our EU membership. We believe we're a compassionate people and therefore what we were offering the Ukrainians was uh, on that basis. Some might have considered it generous, but basically we were just treating them as we would fellow Europeans who are in the dire situation of fleeing war and that there might have been pushback on that basis. But what you're saying there is that there was pushback, but not on that basis, rather on the basis of which ministerial portfolio the the responsibility would be shifting onto rather than whether or not this was the, the, the correct, if you want to put it, moral way to go forward. I just thought that's interesting of itself. Yeah, and look, Cabinet sources said at the time when that row came about that, you know, it was very much Fianna Fáil saying here, well, you're shifting the responsibility onto the housing minister because... Look, Mick, there's an election coming up. The homeless figures are at an all-time high. They're rising every month. There's no sign of them abating. And essentially, you have to see it. And, you know, the Taunashta and the housing minister and others will deny this. But of course, there is a focus on, you know, the possible impact of those homeless figures rising. Because when we report them, the homeless figures, you don't distinguish between, you know, nationality or where they've come from um although there are reports showing that um you just see the homeless figures and you see that they're on the rise and that is damaging the government and it's going to be a massive election issue so of course there was definitely a political element to that here that being said i do know that there was concern at the cabinet table in terms of the welfare, obviously, of Ukrainians who have come over, particularly women and children who will be prioritised for housing in terms of their welfare here. And also questions about, well, if someone flees the war in Ukraine, we'll say in February and they're put into state accommodation and the person staying next door to them, they may be here since, you know, August and July and they're on €220. But the person that has arrived now with new changes are on a reduced rate and the impact that that is going to have as well. So there's definitely concerns about, which is essentially is an inequality here. But the move in terms of how we're now going to be treating Ukrainians that are in Ireland. But the real reason as to why, you know, as government sources are saying is that, you know, yeah, we are a more favourable country in terms of our social welfare offering and our accommodation. We're a really welcoming country. 
Um, I think that has been broadcast across the world. Like I remember being at EU summit meetings and Ireland's response to how Ukrainians have been treated here has been highlighted. And it's something that, you know, we should be proud of. You know, we've had thousands of people at open their doors as well. But maybe that message now has resulted in Ukrainians who have spent time in other EU countries saying, actually, I could have a better standard of living in Ireland and I'm going to move there. And look, who would blame them for doing so if it was you or I, you know, or anyone else and you'd fled war and you had young children, you'd be looking for the best country possible to go live in. However, the government has to act now because we have literally no accommodation. It's got to a stage where the integration minister always had line of sight of some accommodation for Ukrainians, but that's not happening anymore. Yeah, um, couple of things there about that too, Kira. This phrase, the pull factor, is being used a lot, and understandably so. And what you've described, you've described very well there, is effectively constitutes the pull factor as such. Just interesting things, probably a small bit before your time, unlike an old fella like me. But the first time that phrase was used was round about 1998, 99, heading into 2000, when... There was, by, by the standards of today, it was nothing. But by the standards of the time, there was a certain spike in what we call international protection applicants today. I, from recollection, you could be talking about two, three thousand thereabouts, you know. So mm. the response that time to the pull factor, as it's called, was to set up direct provision, which mm. was a temporary little arrangement that we still have 23 years later. The other thing that strikes me is, and you mentioned about, and again, you're spot on in terms of two two Ukrainians living next door, one arrives even in December, for instance, and another in February, and it's totally different. Another reality, and maybe this is a reflection on us and what we don't want to face up to, but we already, of course, have a huge inequality in terms of the way if you're fleeing a war in, in a developing country and you're one of the international protection applicants, you have these relative to what's coming out of Ukraine reduced circumstances anyway. So, as you say, but this is another exacerbation of that in terms of, of, of unequal treatment. The one thing, though, Kira, that completely jumps out of the whole thing is this notion that you put a 90-day limit on the thing. We know already that within direct provision, I don't know the exact figure, but it's running into the thousands of people who have received status and are there for free to go out in the world, to, to attempt to get accommodation, to begin their lives anew here. They can't even leave the direct provision centres because there's nowhere to go. How in the name of God are people under this system ever going to find something after the 90 days? And if they don't, what's the implications of that going to be? Well, I thought it was quite startling when I listened to the Integration Minister, Roger Gorman, speaking this week. Um, he had held a doorstep. Actually, something that I, I noticed about the doorstep was that he was out on his own. And there was no other government representative standing alongside him, which is quite rare. You know, I would have expected the Taoiseach to be there, the Taunashta. You know, whenever we've good news to mention about Ukraine, it's a whole of government response. It's another factor of this that, you know, Roger Gorman has continuously asked, are you actually getting the support and help from your cabinet colleagues and ministers that 
you should be getting he's never going to admit it on air you know or uh, publicly that yeah I'm getting every bit of support I've asked for I don't really think that's the reality behind the scenes back to the point you made in terms of where are they going to go and this contingency plan? And like I said, I was startled when I heard the integration minister speaking during the week because he was asked that very question. After 90 days, where are these people going to go? And he actually admitted that there's no contingency plan. But he also said, we don't expect Ukrainians to end up sleeping homeless or rough on the street. So it seems like it's this proposal and measures that are being put in place. It's on a wing and a prayer. And it's just hoping that this message is sent out that you could face being on the street or you could face face being in a very dire situation if you come to Ireland and after 90 days you can't find it's anywhere else to stay. It's like nearly instilling this fear factor that after 90 days you are in limbo land. And again, Mick, like you mentioned direct provision like we have people in direct provision that are doctors qualifications that are doctors um you know had to wait a certain month a number of months before they could work here but listen are what i think living on pittance like 38 euro a week um it's very little and i think for ukrainians that are coming into ireland as well how would you be able to leave state accommodation after 90 days and afford your own place to live how would you be able to set a few euro aside to even begin to save um and you know i know the government are hoping that more people will open up their homes and you know offer a room and offer maybe a spare house that they have but i think there's eight thousand properties in use like that at the moment and it doesn't seem like there's any more i think i heard a recent statistic where in the last i think two or three months three homes in cork particularly were up for offer and it just, I just really don't see where this is going to go after the 90 days. It's basically wait and see. Are, are Ukrainians going to stop coming here? Is this going to be enough to stem the flow of secondary movements? And if not, the government is going to find themselves in a seriously tricky situation if it's the case that we have both Ukrainians and international protection applicants sleeping rough on the streets. Absolutely, and so, actually, I hadn't thought of that, but it's a very good point that the ninety-day thing, it would appear, is as much about sending a message or public relations yeah. as being observed in in the letter of it, just to send a message out there. Well, you come here, you're taking a chance that you could be turfed out after ninety days, effectively. But it's more about sending out that message because, as you said, there's nowhere for them for them to go. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The other thing that strikes me, Kira, all of the accommodation 
that we're talking about. And this has created huge problems, particularly in parts of rural Ireland where there's tourism. It's all private accommodation. I mean, I think Kerry, for instance, has proportionately a huge number of Ukrainians in particular and and, and generally uh, asylum seekers. And the very simple reason for that is there's large tourist uh, accommodation there, which is now being taken up by this, which again, has knock-on effects for wider economy beyond merely accommodation. And we see Ross Lair, This and this is a different issue that arises too. And, and to be fair to people, you know, people are sometimes cast as being anti-refugees in some form when they protest. But that issue in Ross Lair, it has to be seen in the context that the, the premises there was earmarked for a nursing home. Now, we even saw this week figures out for nursing homes the numbers that have, have, have gone out of use and that that type of facility in a community is much valued and then suddenly they're told not only will it not be for a nursing home but it's going to be accommodation for refugees and they've already welcomed a lot there and there's a strain on services etc. So these things are complicated. But one thing that arises is uh, the, the report that was done there, and I think it's about 18 months now, maybe right in that, Catherine Day, a former very senior official in the EU, headed up a group that did a report into this, and they recommended that the government build at least, I think it was about six reception centres. Is there any sign of that state accommodation seeing the light of day at all? So we got an indication of that for the first time this week. The government has faced a lot of challenges in the last couple of months, in the last year or so. I recall Green Party leader Eamon Ryan being interviewed and asked this question. It must be six months ago now. And he had said that, you know, any of the sites that they had examined, they were facing challenges in terms of whether it's subjections in the area, um, you know, development, how long it will take to build them. But Roger Gorman, the integration minister this week, once the measure was signed off by cabinet, he did say, you know, newly arrived Ukrainians would primarily now be accommodated in these rest centres, so to speak. So like we have seen in in City West, and that's the plan at the moment. He hasn't identified where those rest centres are. Um, for obvious reasons, which we, we've actually so, uh, had to change. These state accommodation? He's calling them state accommodation, but it's not entirely clear yet whether they have, they're going to be renting out premises. So if they've taken over maybe a lease of a premise, um, we haven't got any of the detail yet on where these accommodation rest centres will be. But they had come up against some serious um, challenges in trying to develop these rest centres, like I said, City West. Um, I don't think we'll actually hear a lot about where these rest centres are going to be for a while because there's a fear that what we have seen in other areas, when there's mention of facilities or premises being used for refugees, like disappointingly, they've been set alight or there's been antisocial behaviour which postpones moving some refugees in there. But he did indicate for the first time this week that there would be these state centres that uh, refugees would be housed in. I think that's been a criticism of this government and successive governments for some time because although no one could foresee the war in Ukraine, um, like Catherine Day and many others like her have been warning for years, you know, you not you need to get prepared. Um, you know, there is going to be an inf- influx of refugees across Europe um, for many other reasons, including climate. Um, and that the governments have been warned for so long that they needed to prepare for this. And I think 
it just the lack of preparedness and I suppose the inability of successive governments to get ahead of this has been totally exposed by this crisis. Mm. Oh, definitely. And, you know, there's also a case to be made. And I think this is in terms of uh, societal cohesion that proactively some of these uh, centres should be in the more affluent areas. And I'm not saying that in any kind of a way to have a go at any sections of society, but merely because we have seen that so far in terms of the ad hoc accommodation, so to speak, has been predominantly either in um, more lower socioeconomic areas within cities or else thrown out to rural Ireland, particularly those which have tourist economies, and there's a knock-on effect for that. And, and that, you know, I think personally, and this is only a comment, I think it would be only fair that a proactive attempt is made to spread the load right throughout society. And as you say, there's no chance of them seeing the light of day yet, which is really poor reflection and everything, but it, it is difficult politically. And in a broader sense, Kira. How much of this is feeding in? We've seen recently debates in the Dáil, a bit of a ham-fisted one, I have to say myself, I thought, last week in terms of immigration. Is there a change in the mood music around immigration in the body politic in general? Yeah, definitely, Mick. I think, you know, for so long, you know, the war in Ukraine, come February 2024, it'll be two years since the war in Ukraine began and I think after like the first six or seven months there was definitely questions in the doll about you know the impact like you mentioned on tourism and the number of properties private accommodation providers which are hotels predominantly in you know the west of Ireland where a lot of people would holiday and you know that you know you couldn't essentially get a room staying in some parts of the country because they were being contracts by the state were given at you know I have to say enormous prices for someone who has looked at these state contracts there's definitely uh, properties across the country that are benefiting from this it's become a business for many people um, but I think you know people start in the doll you know opposition certain opposition groups started speaking about it and they were kind of slapped down a little bit by the government benches in terms of you know if they voiced any if, if they voiced questions although some may argue there was some level of an undertone there in you know playing to certain groups that would rather know migrants were here the debate was shut down but I think that's definitely changed and it's particularly in the last couple of months because it's number one like I mentioned it's definitely going to be a massive election issue for this government and secondly, the government have been forced into looking at it themselves because of all the issues that I've already outlined in terms of we've no accommodation, where are people going to go, the impact on the homeless figures. So they've been forced into it. And, you know, we have EU ob obligations and under EU legislation, we actually can't as a country say we're not taking in any, anybody else. But we did see, this is going back a couple of months ago now, before the war in Ukraine, Ireland had agreed at an EU level to essentially accept in refugees that had been already in other EU countries. And basically, you know, uh, most people go to border countries. So, you know, you might see a higher influx of refugees in France and those type of countries. And before the war in Ukraine, Ireland signed up to this agreement that, yeah, 
we agree that refugees should be spread out more evenly across EU member states. And a couple of months ago, the government paid millions, I think it was 1.5 million euro, in order to not accept 350 refugees. So, and you're allowed to do this under this particular rule. And I thought that was the first indication of, okay, well, now the conversation is going to have to change because you're given an option under uh, you're given an option option under certain EU legislation, like I said before the war in Ukraine, that if you don't decide to take in your fair share, we'll say of refugees, they're being spread out more evenly. You have an option of paying not to do so, and I think that was the first indication that okay, the government really know that they're not in a position here to be taking as many refugees as possible. That kind of went under the radar a bit. I thought, to be honest with you, that would have received a lot more attraction at all. It didn't. But then when it came to the point where a couple of months ago we had at the IPAS accommodation in Dublin where we had like tents, like 30, 40 tents. I remember walking past it outside the the premises and then obviously we had the horrific scenes in Sandwich Street um, in the middle of... 2023 of where a refugees tent was set on fire I think the government definitely woke up and said we need to do something here and look at what how we're going to essentially calm the situation I don't I don't know if they've achieved that yet but definitely if focus government minds that we have to change our shift in policy hence why we've seen uh, what has happened with the Ukrainian refugees, although they will say it's primarily down to STEM secondary movements. But also, I think that there has been conversations happening privately as well in terms of government sources that I've been speaking to about the influx of international protection applicants that we've had here. It's It hasn't dipped. It actually has increased a little bit again. And the government, I think, are really concerned about this because they cannot get private providers to sign up to taking them anymore because these private providers are actually scared of being targeted. Their, their premises being targeted by protesters. Um, you know, some may kind of call them protesters. Others don't when, when you know, they set about causing criminal damage, which we have seen in parts of the country. I do think after Christmas, we'll probably see a further shift in terms of how the government is approaching the immigration issue. Because like I said, it's it's now become going to become a massive election, election issue. If you look at any of the polls that we've had in any of the newspapers over the last couple of months, immigration, I think, is like fourth now. It's yeah. housing, health, cost of living and then immigration. And immigration wasn't up there this time last year. No, that is very true. There's no doubt about it. And we know, well, hold on. First of all, <laughs> the smart money says there's going to be a general election in the coming year, but that's not set in stone yet. What is set in stone is that we have European and local elections in, in May or June. And, June, uh, yeah. In June. And I think there's a general consensus that during the European elections, not necessarily at all in this country, probably... Well, no, not probably, but not necessarily in this country, but most definitely in a lot of European countries, immigration and certain parties who have, a, let's put it this way, a, a, a right wing or a, a harsh approach towards immigration are looking to make 
gains. And the thing that strikes me there, Kira, is I just wonder about the local elections in particular, but the European mm. elections to some extent. As you say, it, it's going to become a bigger issue. But how is that going to manifest itself in this country? Because there is no party that's identified in that way. Is this something that we're going to see exclusively being raised by independence, or could we have a scenario whereby some individuals within parties on the basis of sometimes panic or advantage or whatever mm. are going to start going down that route as well? That's quite possible um, in terms of the main parties. You know, you would very often have TDs speak to you privately and say, express their views, but they wouldn't say it out loud. It may be, it may be what a lot of people are thinking, um, but they may be fear of being cancelled, which I suppose isn't fair either, you know, yeah. um, if they feel like they're expressing a view. But I do think primarily it will be independent TDs. Um, I know, you know, in the last couple of weeks as well, we had a motion by the rural independents who brought forward and were criticised heavily for their use of language in their motion in terms of immigration. Um you know, they would say that they, that, you know, what is going to happen to people after um, they leave state accommodation after 90 days. Uh, some of them look for a cap on the number of refugees that are coming here, which we can't do, like I've already outlined. Um, but, and I'm not saying this about the rural independence um, ex- 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 exclusively, but I do see other independent TDs using their platforms and their and their voice say I think this should happen we shouldn't be allowing x amount of people come in here this should happen this should be in place all the while knowing what they're saying realistically can't be done dog whistling exactly we've a lot of that going on Mick at the moment and if you call them out on it they get really defensive and say are you saying that I'm a racist but the thing there that would strike me is if that develops and in, in the first instance in the local elections and for argument's sake say we have a general election in the autumn which is very likely if that develops you can also see a scenario where individual TDs from established or bigger parties in particular constituencies that for example such independents were behaving like that will begin to think well if I don't get on board with this, I'm screwed. Do you know what I mean? It, it could get very tricky, the whole thing. Yeah, well, they have to have an opinion on it, don't they? Mm. They have to either way. I suppose what some of the government TDs would say, you know, when they're going around canvassing and knocking the doors, I think the biggest concern here, and like I've mentioned, the dog whistling, is the, the public really have to be informed as to what legally can and can't be done. And I don't think a lot of, and, and I don't mean, you know, anyone listening to this, I don't expect people to know that, mm. you know, um, actually our job as media is to inform people, probably could be doing a little bit better in terms of informing, informing people of what exactly the government can do, where their, their hands are tied and the policies and uh, the legal framework around that. But then again, I, there's definitely a cohort of people, and look, I know some of them, that no matter what you tell them, they'll dismiss it and say, well, my opinion is this. And they will align their views with, you know, maybe an, a TD or independent TD who, like I mentioned to you, will, you know, voice their opinion on X, Y and Z. But know that 
it could never come to pass because of all the, the reasons I mentioned to you. But in terms of government entities, like you mentioned there, like they will have to have an opinion. Um, a lot of TDs that may feel that they're at risk in their constituencies, is it a possibility that they will start voicing their opinion maybe when they go around and they're canvassing on doorsteps and listening to what people are saying and if immigration becomes a hot topic on the doorstep, which I, I expect will happen, and they hear it, do they think, well, you know, maybe if I have to save myself here and get a few hundred more votes, do I need to be a bit more vocal or stronger on the immigration policy? And, you know, let's be real, some people that want to hold their TD seat will do anything at times in order to get a few votes. That's just the reality of it. In, in the heat of battle and just in that vein, and you mentioned government parties and it just strikes me, I suspect Sinn Féin will come under particular pressure and it should be noted uh, to give Sinn Féin their due. Certainly up until recent times when they've definitely moved to the centre as they've got more popular, understandably, that's where they see the vote. But you go back over the last 10 years and when they were very strong in working class communities and right through serious tough times uh, following the economic crash in 08, Sinn Féin ensured that the ugliness of racism did not rear its head in an awful lot of communities and I think they deserve credit for that because the equivalent of them populist parties albeit coming from the right rather than the left around Europe definitely made hay and that and they made a point of doing the opposite. Now however as they've moved towards the centre and we've seen this in a couple of places they're coming under particular pressure in some areas um, for their position on it and uh, their representatives in these elections will be under a particular type of pressure too. Absolutely. We saw it uh, with the Dublin riots. We saw the aftermath of that. And, you know, obviously both situations very different of the stabbing that happened um, at the time and then the rhetoric that emerged hours later, to be quite honest with you. And I think it was a day or two later, we saw Mary Lou MacDonald being chased uh, into her car and being driven away by a group of what they would call themselves protesters howling abuse at her and their anger and the what the, the words that were throwing at her were words like traitor and um, you're not standing up for us um and it was all this anti-immigration rhetoric as well um because it was questions about you know the nationality of the person that allegedly stabbed you know uh the children and the care worker and you know like to be honest with you, Mick, like I even remember when the protests were happening back in September outside the doll. Remember the doll returned mm. and there was that really vicious like once upon a time you just had the Taoiseach the Taunashta and maybe Eamon Ryan's face up on posters, you know, saying traitor and get them out. But it was Mary Lou MacDonald's face as well. It was uh, their housing spokes- spokesperson's face on her brain. Um and it's definitely an issue that Sinn Féin are going to have to try and address uh, themselves because I think they have, in, in fairness to them, in, in the last couple of weeks or months, have been quite strong on it and condemning it and condemning the racism. I think at the start of the war in Ukraine, personally speaking myself, I do think that they spoke out of both sides of their mouths. It seemed like they were dancing along, you know, well, what is the mood here? How do we ensure that we don't lose votes by people that are concerned? But now as time has moved on, it's very clear 
to how people feel. And there's a cohort of people that are genuinely concerned about the welfare of refugees and how they're being treated in the country. And then there's another cohort who are just racist and don't want migrants here. And I think, you know, Sinn Féin are very much aware that, and I think we're all aware that, you know, maybe that cohort that you would label, you know, racist or, you know, anti, they they don't like immigrants, that they may have been voting for other political parties, opposition parties, rather than the three, you know, three coalition parties that we have now. And quite possibly there were maybe some Sinn Féin voters there. And they got, you'd hear it on the streets that we used to vote for you, but we won't vote for you anymore. Um, but in fairness to Sinn Féin and to, and to the leader and president, Mary Lou MacDonald, she has been quite strong in her position and her party's position in the Dáil in the last couple of weeks in terms of uh, what we have seen transpire in the aftermath of, number one, the riot and also the protests that we've seen outside the Dáil. I think it's very true and it is a very tricky situation for a whole range of people right across the body politic. Very serious stuff, Kira. Um, thankfully, we're approaching a time of year where we try not to be as serious. And in that vein, I have to ask you the question that I am asked by everybody the minute I step outside my house. And it's, How are you fixed for the Christmas? <laughs> Oh God, I have a lot to do still. Make the door. Uh, my Chris, my my Christmas thinking does not start until every politician leaves Leinster okay. House. So obviously they're they're uh, gone Thursday the fourteenth. So they're leaving up leaving today to go back to the constituencies, and that's when I put my Santa suit on yeah. and try to get sorted. I, 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 I have to admit, Kira, when people ask me that, I say, "What? Fix what? What's the big deal? I'm just carrying on." <laughs> Listen, Kira, thank you very much, Kira Feeling Political Correspondent with us, the Irish Examiner, who first, I have to say, broke the story about those what are major changes that have been announced this week. Kira, thanks very much. And if we're not talking, and hopefully will be, happy Christmas to you. Happy Christmas to you and your listeners too, Mick. I always like to thank our engineer JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. We still have a bit of road to go before we hit the holiday season, so stay in by the wall and uh, don't do anything crazy between now and then. Talk to you soon. <laughs>